Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So apparently the secret to making Nirvana's record in utero was there was no secret. Steve Albini produced the album. He's on the show today, and he has stories for you about what it was like 30 years ago in the room where it happened to watch Kurt Cobain sing the whole thing pretty much in one go. And he gives you a window into something you don't hear people talk about enough when it comes to Nirvana, which is that they were just a really hardworking band who held themselves to a super high musical standard. Go figure. And the Good Lovelies uh, have a new album called We Will Never Be the Same. They call into the show from a parking lot in Winnipeg to introduce you to a new song. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Well, this fall is the 30th anniversary of one of the defining records of the 1990s and maybe just plain ever. That is, of course, Nirvana heart-shaped box off their final studio album, In Utero, which was released back in 1993. If you're good at math, you might have noticed it's been 30 years. This is the 30th anniversary. Uh, And for those who weren't there at the time or maybe were just kids, it's kind of hard to describe how unexpected that record was at the time and how mixed the feelings were about it. Nirvana had just come off of releasing Nevermind, one of the biggest records of all time. Massive guitars, double-tracked vocals. And for their next album, Kurt Cobain wanted to do something different. He wanted to do something that felt like the band just in a room far away from what they had just done with Nevermind. And he sought out a guy to make the record who had made some of his favorite records with bands like the Pixies. That guy was Steve Albini. He and the band camped out and produced a record that scared the label, sold millions of copies, and 30 years later is still regarded as an ahead-of-its-time classic. It is raw. It's immediate. It confounded a lot of the people at the time who heard it, but over the years, In Utero has grown in legend and in popularity. There's a big 30th anniversary deluxe box set out now, and our next guest is the guy that was there for all of it. It is musician, recording engineer, professional poker player, and more. Uh, Here's Tom Power's conversation with Steve Albini. Steve, how are you? Pretty good today, yeah. I'm I'm glad. I guess congratulations on 30 years. Yeah, you know, um, the remarkable thing about it is that I didn't have to do anything for it to get to 30 years. (laughs) I just basically just carried on, and it happened, you know, unbidden. Yeah, you deserve deserve none of the acclaim for for the 30 years. Yeah, I feel, I mean, over the years, I feel like I have gotten a lot of uh, undue attention for for the sake of records that I worked on that, in in my lights anyway, would have been remarkable records, regardless of who was in the chair making them. And I think this is a pretty good example. Like, the the record was recorded in a conventional fashion and in very Spartan arrangements, and I think you know, 
certain a certain a, a monkey of a certain intellectual capacity could have been trained to make that record and it would have been just as good in my opinion but how did you get involved in the first place there had been rumors kind of floating around in the year or so prior to my being asked to work on that record that nirvana were interested in working with me um specifically as a departure from the sort of career arc that was expected of them which was to having made a huge smash hit record to just go back into the studio with a, the same or a similar circumstance and make another smash hit record. And they, they wanted to thwart that um, by making a record in the style that they were accustomed to prior to their massive success. That is just write the songs, arrange them, rehearse them, go into the studio, knock them out and call it done. The main concern is just, I mean, I knew that they were capable of making a good record on their own terms. They had done it before and they, you know, they were seasoned and they were, you know, they were a remarkable band in many ways. But the main thing would be just what they would have to deal with, sort of, I guess the term would be politically within their record label and management um, hierarchy for not doing things in the way that they were being asked to the way that what they were being asked to do was to make another one of the same record that they had just previously made that was hugely successful and they didn't want to make the same record again they wanted to make a different record and uh you know we talked about the idea that everyone involved that was sort of had sort of attached themselves to the band but not not the members of the band, but the, all the people around them whose livelihoods and status kind of depended on the success of this record, all of those people would have self-interest and uh, they, you know, they would see that as legitimate purchase for them to be critical yeah. of all of their decisions and to, you know, to try to convince them to do it in a way that they were comfortable with rather than in the way that they wanted to do it. Yes, I'm relieving, now that you're leaving, soon as you can pay. Yes, I'm Knowing what I know uh, of you is that, and I don't really know if I have the word for it, but like um, very everyday, um, you know, some, someone asks you to do a record, you do a record with them, you... You 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 record them. You you make sure they're doing the kind of the best performances they can, and 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 you do you know countless records a year. Um, but is there a, a part of you that when you finally say yes to this and and the band agrees to to work with you, is there any part of you at all that's kind of like, oh my god, I'm making the Nirvana Nevermind follow up record. I'm 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 part of that thing. No, I, I mean honestly, nobody in the room had any thoughts about that and in terms of like the the expectations associated with the record like literally from the first song that they ran through i knew it was going to be a good record and we right. didn't have anything to worry about um if it i mean there's a you know it could have turned into a some kind of a catastrophe like a lot of things could have gone wrong and you know everybody was kind of prepared for things to get derailed in one way or another but it, it you know just just be, because those kind of lightning strike events happen and randomly bands have to suffer them. But it just, it, it wasn't a big, it wasn't tense. It wasn't 
self-conscious. It, it was, it seemed very, everything about it seemed very natural and very normal. It was like very much at that point I was doing on the order of a hundred albums a year with, you know, very short stints in the studio, very small budgets. Um, and it felt very much like another one of those records that I had been making, you know, just the band had their material together. They were, they, they played really well. They communicated well within the band and they were holding themselves they had held themselves to a high standard and they delivered I, I, you know i was really impressed with the band with the way they played and uh, and how together everything was when we got to the studio and once they started playing i you know nobody had any second thoughts honestly Can you tell me, can you tell that story that I've heard about these sessions that I, I really, really like, but I'd like to hear it from you, um, is that the, the one consideration or one of the considerations with working a band, working with a band as big as Nirvana at that point was that you had to give a fake name to the <laughs> studio. Can you tell that story? Uh, yeah, I mean, that when you're dealing with somebody who's an incredibly famous, you want to do what you can to preserve their privacy so that they get to have a normal experience and not have to like fight off the paparazzi or, you know, Rolling Stone reporters or whatever. So we chose a studio that was a very nice studio, acoustically very nice, you know, good equipment. I'd had good results there. I'd done a, a few records there already. I did the Wedding Present and a PJ Harvey record and a couple of other records that had gone gone well there. And um, and it was about 50 miles outside of Minneapolis, which already provided some layer of anonymity and a buffer between them and potential problems, just that it wasn't in the middle of a big metropolis where people would see them you know waiting for the bus or whatever um and it was a residential studio meaning that everyone could stay inside the studio so there wouldn't be you know taxis to and from a hotel or whatever where word could get out and people would you know eventually the word could get out that something was happening regarding this very famous band and one of the ways that uh i tried to preserve their privacy was by when I booked the studio, I booked it uh, as a session of mine and we used a fake band name for to hold the booking. And the fake band name was the Simon Ritchie band, Simon Ritchie being Sid Vicious's birth name. When the, the, the guy that owned the studio, when I was doing the booking, he's Simon Ritchie band. And I said, yeah, it's kind of a bluegrass band. <laughs> like I just sort of deflected and I couldn't, I, that was poorly considered honestly i didn't hadn't thought of hadn't thought that through because um they were contacted by a freight company a couple of days before the session saying yeah we have a, a semi truck with all the equipment for the session uh for the simon ritchie band and you know a bluegrass band doesn't need a semi truck full no. of equipment no. so w when they met the truck and started unloading all the flight cases that had Nirvana screen printed on them, then they knew that, you know, they knew what was up, but mercifully that was literally the day before everyone arrived and there was, there was no time for anything to leak out. And 
we were done and out of there within two weeks. So there wasn't really time for anything, you know, for word to get out and or for anything treacherous to ha transpire. I'm not like How was Kurt in the studio? What do you remember about Kurt in the studio? Extremely focused. Um, he's He was kind of reserved around me at a minimum, like he might have been. Uh, and you get the impression that some of that is slightly defensive from, you know, and he may have learned that fairly recently, like having only recently become extremely famous. I never pressed him for any intimacy. Uh, you know, I, I made it clear that I worked for him and that I was there to do a job and and I, so I wasn't, I wasn't one of the, the countless people who were trying to insinuate themselves into his life in order to be, you know, either vicariously or vampirically sort of part of the process. I, I, I didn't want him to have any reservations about me in that regard. So I ma made it clear that I was working for him. The, the level, the degree of preparedness was really impressive to me, like, they had done some demo recordings of the songs uh, and they had rehearsed them quite a bit. But he had also had sort of second level production ideas in mind for each mm -hmm. of the songs, like, uh, you know, a complimentary guitar part or a moment of special effect in the vocal or, you know, some something. And then uh, I, the thing that impressed me the most was when he, when the time came to, for him to do the final vocals for, for the the album, we had several days left in the in the session, um, and plenty of time for him to take a leisurely pace at, at in the re recording the vocals. But he basically just started at the beginning and sang the whole album, like uh, it, it was one fairly fairly long session i want to say eight or ten hours and he sang basically the entire album he may have redone a song or two the following day but he he essentially he sang the whole record in in one go That's wild to me because it's it's a it's a relatively I don't want to say it's screamy like it's not like a minor threat record or anything like that but it's like a relatively screamy raspy record I mean yeah, that, that's a long also, that's a long run yeah but also like I think it's I think it's apparent that people who whose singing style has that aspect they get good at it yeah, over time fair enough, and yeah. they and it's less stressful for someone who is trained or has trained themselves to be you know to have a very harsh vocal tone it's less stressful on them than than it would be on you or me doing it cold you know um and so i think that's that's part of it just that he was he was okay, he knew what he was capable of and he knew how to go about it 
in a way that wouldn't be destructive. Here in the middle of Tom Powers' conversation with the producer of In Utero by Nirvana, Steve Albini, although he prefers to be called recording engineer. That album had its 30th anniversary this month. It is widely regarded as a masterpiece in 2023. But back in 1993, as you were about to hear, when they first listened to the completed record, Nirvana's label didn't like it. I would say hated it, but I'll leave that for Steve Albini to say. Uh, what was that like for Steve as the producer to hear? Well, that is where we pick up their conversation. Um, I remember an immense feeling of satisfaction on the part of the band when we were listening to the playback of the masters after we'd finished everything. Just everybody was just grinning ear to ear, listening to song after song that they where they really felt like they'd knocked it out of the park. And uh, you know, then everybody decamped and went home. And Kurt called me and he said, Yeah, you're you were right. Everybody, everybody hates the record and they want us to redo it. And that was sobering that you know people present it you know i can understand people like in their minds like imagining some kind of a fiasco of a you know some kind of an abrasive noisy unlistenable trash record you know imagining that that might be what comes back you know but they were what they were delivered is what what you hear when you play the record and and it's it's clearly done artfully it's clearly done with intent it might be you know, a couple of clicks more aggressive in spots and a couple of clicks more obtuse in spots than your tip, the typical top 40 record of the day. But it's, you know, it's not a piece of shit is what I'm getting at. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's, and it's not like, it's not something that's really hard to listen to unless you're into hardcore or unless you're into, you know. So one thing that's kind of odd though, it's like when you listen, when I listen to that record now with, you know, all, all of the myriad trends and and sort of uh, desensitizing effects that have happened in the in, in the interim, all the, the many more crazy, harsh and abrasive styles of music that have come in the interim. When you listen to it now, it's like I'm I'm baffled, like what people what the gripe was. I'm ba- it just it sounds like a normal record to me, you know, but if you just even, uh, you know, on YouTube, whatever, like bounce around on some other records that were released in the early nineties and listen to a few of their contemporary major label cohort. It's pretty apparent how awful a lot of that music was and how, how dull and bland a lot of that music was and how like, I can understand if you were acclimatized to that kind of music hearing something that to my mind was fairly indicative of their you know their upbringing in the post-punk underground like a record that was in keeping with all of their peers like it you know the bands that they admired and that they emulated their entire existence the melvins and the jesus lizard and even bands like the pixies like it's not that different from the the bands that they were contemporaneous with 
what's different about it is the context of them being yeah. the biggest band in the world yeah. and the biggest band in the world, you know, previously that would be, you know, much more pedestrian music. So, so Kurt called me and he said, yeah, everyone hates it. They want us to redo it. And on, you know, on second thought, like we're, there are a couple of things that we'd like to do differently as well. And so we're thinking about trying to remix some stuff and, do you want to do it? And so, and I said, well, let me listen. I had a copy of the master at my house. I said, well, let me listen to my copy. And if I feel like I can do any better anywhere, then I'm, you know, I, I'm happy to be involved. You know, you guys hired me. I work for you. I'll do what you want. But if I, if I feel like it's a, a losing effort, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste the energy. And I also don't want you to be in a position where you are seen as having failed at something by dint of us trying to do, you know, alternate versions and then still not being satisfied, right? So I I listened to the entire album and I had the same exact feeling as I did when we did the first playback that they really wrung the sponge, like they got, you know, like it was a great record and they had nothing to be ashamed of. And I, I didn't feel like I could on an engineering level, like I didn't feel like there was anything that I could do better to represent those masters. And so I called Kurt back and I said, yeah, I, I don't think I can do any better than this. This is like, this is about as good as you're going to get out of me. But you know, if you, if you want to fiddle around with it, it's your record. And if you want to fiddle around with it, you know, it's, you have my blessing. It's your record. You should do what you like, but I don't think I can do anything more in the end. They did end up, like, I think they added some backing vocals to a song and they did remix a couple of songs. That aspect of it um, has been kind of portrayed as like the record label triumphing over them and forcing a concession out of them. And I that, speaking of the, the sort of lore and myth versus reality, that's absolutely not what happened. Like, it's totally normal for a band to have some reservations about their record after they finished it and to second guess themselves and want to try some alternate versions. That's a totally normal thing and much less famous and notorious people than Nirvana have, have done that, you know, many times. And so the fact that they remixed a couple of songs and that those ended up being the singles should, you shouldn't read too much into that. Like it's very easy to, for that to become a kind of a narrative where the record label like won in the end and got forced a concession out of the band. And that that's absolutely not what happened. I saw that as Nirvana sort of managing the situation to the extent they could and maintaining their control over their own record. That's Nirvana with Penny Royalty from their final studio album, In Utero. 
Coming up, you'll hear more of Tom Power's conversation with the album's producer, Steve Albini. And they'll pick up on on what you kind of just heard at the end of their conversation there, where Steve was setting the record straight about the narrative around Nirvana. Get ready for more myth-busting. It's kind of myth-busting the Nirvana edition. That's coming up on Q. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. I'm convinced that the creative impulse is second maybe to the mating instinct or, or hunger or one of those. And it is innate in everyone. Everyone? Everyone? I think Steve Albini means it when he says that. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of Tom's conversation with Steve, who is a legendary producer and recording engineer. It's the 30th anniversary of the most famous album he ever produced, In Utero by Nirvana. Now, aside from his excellent technical abilities, Steve is also one of the most thoughtful engineers in the industry. And that's where the conversation goes now. He's going to get a little spiritual, a little philosophical on what really matters in music, how mistakes are actually important, and why myth-making actually makes things less interesting. Here's part two of Tom Power's conversation with Steve Albini. Let me tell you this, because I don't know if I'm ever going to get a chance to talk to you again. So I'll, t- I'll tell you what changed my mind on this. I was a big believer in the myth. I was a big believer. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I played in, in, in toured in a folk band, and I do this job. But like, I was a big believer in the myth, and I collected the myth, and I loved, I loved the myth. And then when I, uh, and I was a big believer in the myth around Bob Dylan, like, oh, that you know, this guy who represented, you know, and and, and was sort of godlike to me, you know, that you know he had these incredible powers and changed his name and blah 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 blah. blah. And then um, I remember I went to see him in my in my hometown in St. John's, and I went up to the front, and he was wearing like sweatpants on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I had this moment I had this moment of like so two things happened one I went oh he's just a dude that's just a guy that's just invest that's not a special person that's just a guy and I think his music is even more meaningful to me now without the myth yeah. because it came from just a guy there's a there's a kind of a a projection where people think like oh I'm incapable of that so people are incapable of that so it must be something other than just somebody singing a song. There must be more to it than that, you know. And these myths provide some kind of palliative care for for someone who doesn't want to recognize that some people are just really good at things. And that somebody being really good at something means that they can go into the studio and a half an hour later come out with something that will break your heart, you know. It, it pains people to think that it's normal everyday stuff being an artist or a musician. Like, so they, so they like these tales of wildness and abandon and eccentricity because it, it, it provides a, a, like 
justification for them not aspiring to something or justification for them not trying something. It's like, oh, you need to be a special driven freak to do those kinds of things. When in reality, you can be, you know, a suburban dad and still do in incredible art if what you're doing is trying to express yourself rather than trying to fit a paradigm, yeah. you know? So how do you, like, how did you get there on that? Just seeing it happen in front of me every day, like being a part of the punk scene was really transformative for me. Like I, I came to, to Chicago in 1980 to go to college, but I immediately just was embedded in the music scene and surrounded by the the craziest freaks and the, the most insane, energetic, intelligent people. And just seeing what normal, regular people that you would ride the bus with were capable of when they took when, when they had a mind to do it with the barest of tools, like just the, the bare essentials of anything. And that that really changed my perception of of everything. Like you didn't need a license. You didn't need to be trained in anything. You all, all you needed to do was just dive in and get started. And, you know, maybe you're going to make a sloppy mess of it in the beginning, but you'll find your sea legs and you'll find your own style. And if you pursue it and if you're doing it diligently, what you're trying to do is express yourself in a way that's unique to you. And I promise you, every single person has a voice. Every single person can do it. Now I understand your recording because there's a lot made of the fact that you are a recording engineer and not a producer. There's a lot made of the fact that you don't take points off the records. There's there's a lot made of the thing that you said to me off the top that like, hey, you know, a lot of I just had to turn on, I just had to press the record button, and that band was going to make what they made. But I think I understand it now a little bit better because the the if the band themselves has an authentic. Ah, maybe not authentic. What is? I don't even know what authenticity is. If the band itself has something coming out of them that feels uh, appropriate and good and real, you know that that's all you got to get. You know that you don't got to get in the way of it. So if you just think about your own experience as a listener, like the records that you respond to, like the records that mean the most to you, the things that you hear and they're and they're gripping, like what you're reacting to is uh, an effort at communion like the the person on the other side of the microphone has something on their mind and they want you know they want you to understand their enthusiasm or their mania or their interest or their horror or whatever it is they want you to understand their idea and the whole effort everything about making a record is about that notion of communication or communion between the the listener and the person performing. The creative impulse is that. I'm convinced that the creative impulse is second maybe to the mating instinct or, or hunger or one of those. And it is innate in everyone. And what you're reacting to is something that is uniquely the product of that one person's mind or that one collective's mind, like the, that group does a thing and you respond to it because it's uniquely theirs and you get it. Now, now you understand something more about them. Right. But if you, if you ask the, the authorities about the arts, you know, how, do, how, how do you go about doing this? they will give you these procedural steps that you can use to become 
competent at execution of a painting or a written score or um, a soliloquy or something. They will they will give you tools that allow you that allow that actually are basically only concerned with competence. And I submit that the the thing that makes music, that makes art, that makes any creative enterprise interesting is unrelated to its competence. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Like like the I remember hearing a thing, I don't don't even remember where it was, but it was some engineer, this is an example of engineering hubris. Like some engineer took an Ella Fitzgerald performance and auto-tuned it, you know? <laughs> and it was a demonstration. I've always felt Ella Fitzgerald records needed auto-tune. That's always been my uh, feeling, yeah. Well, ex exactly. That's yeah. the point. Like, what you like about music is unrelated to its technical competence. Like, if you... Like, I've never once in my life, not once, not one time ever, have I ever sat engrossed in a record and then thought to myself, eh, I would have liked it, except they sped up a little bit there. I can tell that they sped up a little bit going into that chorus, and that, that that's just not going to fly with Uncle Steve. You know, I want my music listening to be linear. You know, I've just never thought that way ever. I just don't think those things matter to people. But those are some of the, the that's the, one of the small number of things that can be controlled in the studio environment. Like you can put a metronome up and make certain that every take comes out precisely the same mathematical tempo that checks a box on a list of attributes of competence or something. But it, it has absolutely no relationship to, to whether or not the, the music that comes out is good, right? Uh, I can't remember who it was, but some someone uh, at the studio very made a very pithy comment that all the records in the dime bin at the record store they don't have a mistake on them mm. anywhere <laughs> like they're all they're all perfect you know Is meanwhile it... meanwhile you know you you listen to a led zeppelin song where you yeah. can hear like the clumsy edit or the bad punch in or the 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 print through echo or like you can hear all these technical flaws that just are, they don't matter. They don't have any bearing whatsoever on whether or not something is good or, you know, like you listen to some of those surf records, like, and you know, those are, you know, intricate, tricky guitar runs that they had to play and they're, you know, high tempos and the, the tempos go all over the map. You yeah. know, they they speed up like mad and, the, and, you know, there's dead notes everywhere in, a lot, in every one of those guitar solos. It's like, it just doesn't matter. Nobody cares. I love I, Yeah. I love that. Cause you're right. My favorite, my favorite records are, and I'm a bluegrass guy speaking of not even a fake uh, band bluegrass guy, but uh, like, I, I remember listening to the Stanley brothers and they, I remember them being a little bit out of tune sure. and just thinking it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard in my entire it's, life. When it gets sour and then solves itself. That's like the, that's, you know, you can live in that. That's incredible. I, I, I don't, I don't like, dropping names it makes it seem like i'm appealing to authority and uh but i did a record with jimmy page one time jimmy page and robert plant and um i had an experience with him that i that i thought was pretty enlightening he he was known as an exceptional studio guitarist like he did, made his living playing sessions and you know 
had to sight read things, complex pieces of music, play them perfectly the first time through or he'd be fired, right? So he was, he from a technical standpoint, he's an exceptional musician by anybody's measure, right? We were working on this song and he had done, a, in the live take of the song with the band, he had done a guitar solo that was, you know, in the solo section of the song, he'd played a performance, a, a solo live on the floor. There were a couple of little things in the solo that he wanted to correct. And while we were playing through it, he was listening for these things that he wanted to correct. Like there was a movement that was a little slow in one spot. He wanted it to be of a particular rhythm. Um, there was another spot in this. While we were sitting there listening, looking for things to repair, there was one section of the solo where he played a little figure, a little three-note figure, diddle-a-dum, 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 right? And it was a repeated three-note figure. And one of the notes in one of the repetition, one of the iterations of the figure was thumbed. So it was like diddle-a-dum, 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 right? Like he, he blew yeah. one of the notes, right? So I, I pointed that out that I noticed that, like, do you want to, while we're fixing stuff, do you want to fix that one little clam there? And he said, no, nah, they'll get the idea. Ah, uh, yeah. And I thought, I thought, what, what an absolutely perfect summation of, you know, forty years as a professional musician and as a as a genius, like a genuine genius who changed music. Like, what an encapsulation of his entire career. They'll get the idea. Like, all he really wants, he has these ideas. He just wants you to get the idea. Once you got it, then that's good. And. <laughs> Uh, it, that you know that moment has stayed with me. I dropped that anecdote you know, like almost whenever any when I have the, I have the opportunity just because like it would have been a trivial thing for him to fix that diddle dum diddle dum diddle dum right and afterwards people still would have gotten the idea but he wasn't concerned about the cosmetic perfection of it. What he wanted was to have played this thing extemporaneously. And have it come off and let let people get it. And the, uh, so, I, I think that attitude is, especially in the contemporary production environment where there are such powerful corrective tools yeah. available in digital systems. Um, like you, it's almost like you wouldn't be allowed to hear something like that um, in a contemporary record because it would be considered poor manners to let a thumbed note like that slide as an engineer. Like when it's just so easy, just drag and drop, you know, I could just, let me know, just keep, let me just straighten it out a little bit. Not, not perfect. Perfect. I just want to straighten it out a little bit. Like, you know, like that impulse is just so natural now in the contemporary production aesthetic that I, I feel like it, it goes against the, the core project of playing music for other people. Steve, I could talk to you for, for a million years about all this, and uh, thanks, thanks for making the time to talk to us a little bit in utero and talk a little bit about perfection and in music and all that. Love it, love it to get a chance to talk to you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
from their 1993 masterpiece in utero. That was Nirvana with all apologies. Before that, you heard Tom Powers' conversation with that records producer, Steve Albini. And when you think about the word record, as in the other meaning of record, like a record of a moment in time that happened once, I think Steve made that really clear in their conversation. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power here on Q. If you're on a prairie highway right now, just have a lookout, a safe lookout for a big old touring van full of good lovelies. Caroline Brooks, Cario, and Sue Passmore are making their way across Western Canada right now on a tour to support their brand new album called We Will Never Be the Same. So we thought it might be good to check in on them on the road, make sure they're safe, and hopefully catch a story about a song from the record. Here's what happened when Tom found singer Caroline Brooks. Caroline, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Tom? I'm good. Can you let people know where I am talking to you from right now? Um, I'm in the parking lot of the Long McQuaid in um, Winnipeg. We're just taking off a tour across Western Canada and picking up our back line. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's not the glitz, it's the glamour, Caroline. That's what they always say. <laughs> totally. Um, h- how long have the Lovelies been around now? Um, we're coming on our 17th birthday, and yes, we count still. <laughs> yeah, we've been uh, we've been together for 17 years. It's been our full time gig for about seven, uh, 15 of those years, which is really incredible, given you know what being a musician is all about. But we're really, really lucky to have each other and be through it together. You know. I remember, of course, you know, we, you and I are good good friends, and I remember meeting you kind of those early days at Folk Alliance out in the hallways when, you, you know, we all, we all still had other things to do, and you guys yeah. were just starting out, and I think I still have your first, your first EP. But my, oh my, 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 my question is, when you've been together this long and it comes time to make this new record, what kind of conversations is, is the band having with one another? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think, I mean, we we know each other so intimately that I and and are living together in in a way that a lot of the songs end up having a lot of the same um, thematic uh, centers, mm. you know. So the three of us um, share songwriting credits. Sometimes songs come fully formed. Sometimes we write them. We fully flesh them out together. But I wouldn't say that we had a conversation about like we want these songs to be about this, you know. Like I think. For us, a big part of songwriting is just being honest to where we're at in that moment. So, you know, listening to a lot of these tunes, you can hear a lot of the um, themes of middle age. You know, we're all in our early 40s and have a lot of people who depend upon us, you know, and um, there's a lot of love there and there's been a lot of challenges over the last few years. So you hear a lot of those things coming out. And um, yeah. Yeah, I remember you telling me, and I hope you don't mind me asking you about this so publicly, but I remember you telling me that, and this is exciting for anyone listening to this on, on, on the CBC, you wrote some of this record at Stuart McLean's cabin. <laughs> yeah, we actually contemplated calling this record the Cottage Record very briefly because we both wrote and recorded the majority of the album in cottages in Canada. So... Um, when we were looking for a place to get away for a while, um, I put a note up on Facebook and uh, Stuart's girlfriend messaged me and said, do you want to write at, cot- at Stuart's Cottage in Laurentian? So yeah, Carrie, Sue and I spent a whole week 
there in October, almost two years ago now. It was the colors were so beautiful, and we were all sitting, you know, at Stuart's writing desk at his cottage. And uh, it felt really special because, as you know, Tom, Stuart's a huge part of our story and helped um, put us in front of a lot of folks. So we're still, still feel a lot of gratitude there for that. So it's really nice to have him be part of this record in a way. We're going to set up the song now in a moment. We're going to play the song Tip to Toe. But my understanding is is that the uh, primary songwriter of this song, our good friend <laughs> Carrie O, is sitting next to you in the parking Cheers. lot at the Long and McQuaid <laughs> in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Tom. It's it's so elegant in here. Coffee on the dashboard, laptop in my left hand. How are you? Again, it's not the glitz. It's the glamour. It's the glamour. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit. I love this song. Tell me a little bit about where it came from. Oh, thanks, Tom. Um, you know, the song started in in one entirely different place. It was a song about sort of just standing in your in your sacred ground and just holding space, whatever that meant for you, and and trying to express that feeling. And it it wasn't finished until I brought it to Sue and Caroline, and we they helped me kind of figure out the intention between this like struggle of like these two selves inside of me and I guess, you know, humans, they're the conflicting selves that kind of get in our own way. And I don't know, it's, it's a song of expression and a lot of people are in my mind when I was writing it. And the the very beginning of the song is like, I, I, Oh my God, I can't remember my own lyrics guys. Um, I go, you know, I go the distance or I don't go anywhere. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm going to go full throttle or I'm just going to stop myself. I'm just going to, it's like exact opposites and the ways that we just cause our own suffering. It just, it, it brings to mind. So I keep wanting to blame it on other people. I keep wanting to talk about it, like that it's from external people, but truly it's like my own fights in inside of like all or nothing kind of tendencies and extreme behavior that sort of, that's where the song Nugget is in this one. Well, I'm I'm so excited we're going to get a chance to, to hear it. I'm so excited you gave us a chance to talk to you again from the Long and McQuaid parking lot <laughs> in Winnipeg, Man- Winnipeg Manitoba. Uh, I love you guys very much. Can one of you introduce the song? Say hi, uh, we're the good lovelies, and, and this is Tip to Toe. Can one of you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Hi, we're the good lovelies, and this is Tip to Toe. Good Lovelies and their song Tip to Toe that's on their brand new album called We Will Never Be the Same. You can head over to their website goodlovelies.com for a whole bunch of Western Canadian dates if you want to see them live. 
And that's it for Q today. Tomorrow on the show, you've got acclaimed French director Justine Trier, uh, who joins Tom Power to discuss her new film and this year's Palme d'Or winner, Anatomy of a Fall. It's set against the backdrop of a courtroom, and the film puts the intimate details of a marriage on trial when a woman is charged with the murder of her husband after he falls to his death in their home. Ooh, spicy. You can catch that on Q tomorrow. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. See you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.